Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. In 2022, the United States spent $4.5 trillion, or 17% of the national economy, on healthcare. While we spend more as a country, we also spend more as individuals. In the same year, out-of-pocket spending for healthcare in America grew by 10%, the fastest growth since 1985. As healthcare becomes more financialized with the introduction of private equity firms and other corporate actors, it seems the cost of getting high-quality healthcare is getting higher and higher. Our guest today is on a mission to understand how financial incentives and policy interventions impact healthcare spending. Zira Song is an associate professor of healthcare policy and medicine at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. A physician economist, his work focuses on evaluations of payment reform, private equity investment in healthcare, and employer efforts to control spending. Professor Song is the director of research at Harvard Center for Primary Care, and he has worked on payment policy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and at the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. Professor Song's recent papers, which we will discuss, have tried to understand the murky and confusing world of private financing in healthcare. Zero Song, we're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you both for having this podcast and giving researchers like me a chance to discuss work like this. In short, private equity is one form of private ownership of healthcare providers. And indeed, the journey of private equity into healthcare took some time. It was a business model that was born out of the 1980s or so that used leverage buyouts, which we'll uh, describe, to acquire businesses and return generate returns for investors. Private equity as a business model had worked through many industries across our economy, from manufacturing service sectors to telecommunications to many consumer goods parts of our economy. And it wasn't until roughly the beginning of the 2000s when private equity began to take a stronger interest in healthcare. So it took about 20, perhaps 25 years for private equity firms to make their way fully into the healthcare delivery system. And starting about the early 2000s, we began to observe acquisitions of hospitals, after which, or in parallel to which, we saw acquisitions of nursing homes. And a few years after, around the early 2010s, there was a surge in the acquisitions of physician practices, which continues to pick up pace today. Alongside these aspects of healthcare delivery, other parts of the delivery system have also seen uh, their increasing share of acquisitions from private equity firms as well. These would include durable medical equipment, telehealth companies, newer ideas, including drug discovery, more of a venture capital type model, but now also under the umbrella of private equity at times, and more specialties within the healthcare system. We live in a world with over 100 specialties and subspecialties in medical care. And there are a few notable specialties that were early targets of private equity acquisition. But nowadays we are beginning to see newer targets, including primary care, behavioral health, uh, substance use uh, disorder treatment facilities. Uh, in addition to the earlier acquisitions of the primary outpatient procedural specialties like dermatology. It sounds like private equity is pretty much everywhere in healthcare right now after a somewhat slower start, but in hospitals, nursing homes, long-term care, durable medical equipment, various specialties. How does it work? You said something earlier, we talked about leverage buyout. How does private equity take investor capital, private money, and convert it into an asset or use it to acquire an asset like a hospital? To put it in its appropriate context, it is growing and acquisitions have accelerated. However, in the grand scheme of healthcare delivery, it remains a rather small slice of the delivery system. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to put your reflection yeah. in a bit of context there. And to answer your question about the model more directly, in the classic, so-called classic private equity acquisition, it is largely debt financed meaning that a private equity firm raises capital in the form of investor contributions, typically called a private equity fund. That fund then chips in to the acquisition price of a hospital or physician practice or nursing home. And that acquisition price is financed 
a little bit by the investor capital and a tiny bit by the capital chipped in from the parent private equity firm. But in large part, historically around 60, 70, 80% of that acquisition price is contributed by a lender, sometimes a bank or an institution that loans money for the acquisition of this healthcare entity. So just to give an example, in a classic private equity acquisition, you might have 30% real equity from the investors and the parent firm, and 70% loan or okay. borrowed money. That 30% of so-called real equity from the investors and the parent private equity firm is largely investor-driven. In the classic model, over 90%, sometimes as high as 98% of that 30% of the acquisition price is from investors in society. And you may like to return to this too at some point, but the largest investors in our society that contribute to private equity acquisitions are US pension funds, university endowments, sovereign funds of other nations, and the wealth of wealthy individuals. That's the lion's share of that small piece of existing equity used to acquire a business or a healthcare entity. The parent private equity firm. Sorry to interrupt you, Zuri, but you say a small, like, I don't know how to ask this. What, maybe what percentage of US hospitals today are private equity owned, would you estimate? A rough estimate might put it around 10%, give or take. <laughs> there have been several hundred hospitals acquired by private equity firms to date. And again, the parent firms are chipping in a very small proportion of that acquisition price. It's mostly funded by investors in society and by the majority of the acquisition price contributed to by an institution like a bank that loans those dollars to the private equity firm to make that acquisition. Okay. So I, I don't want to slow down too much here, but, but I think it's probably a stupid question to ask. When you say buy a hospital or buy a nursing home, I get it. There's a building, there's bricks and mortar, there's... So I go in and buy, I buy it. What does it mean to buy a physician practice. There's a building, but that's not really what that means. And from the point of view of the clinician, the doctor, the nurses working there, what has changed when practice is acquired, is bought? It's a great question, Don. In the physician practice setting, which again has been growing in recent years, in the last decade or so, typically an acquisition involves owning the practice. So as a relative comparison, if you look at a benchmark like venture capital, for example, Venture capital acquisitions are typically earlier stage ideas. They typically take a small share of the ownership of an idea or perhaps of an institution. And they're typically looking for larger multiple returns. In contrast, private equity acquisitions typically involve ownership or at least majority ownership of the acquired asset or the acquired entity. So the practice and the clinicians and the resources, the infrastructure of the practice are typically acquired or owned by the parent private equity firm. The parent private equity firm will then in turn manage much of the day-to-day -day operations of the practice. But the management comes in the form of typically a general partner from the private equity firm directing the clinical operations to perhaps do some things differently or perhaps continue doing what they're doing. But there's generally direction taken from the parent private equity firm through a so-called general partner or a member of the firm. The is that a general partner or somebody who knows something about how to practice medicine? Or is that general partner or someone who is a, not necessarily schooled in the practice of medicine? In general, what, what's your observation? That's a great question, too. Historically, case studies of private equity acquisitions have suggested that the general partner often is an expert in the business world more so than in the healthcare world. Mm -hmm. But you also have instances where the general partner has healthcare expertise. It really varies by the firm and by the acquisition. Can you, can you just take this to ground a little more in terms of the experience of, let's take a doctor. So a doctor on Monday has not been acquired and is seeing patients, but maybe they're part of a group of doctors that are managing their practice. And then on Tuesday, they get acquired by private equity with the debt financing you're talking about. What has changed from that? What will they feel? What will they see? What could they notice? Or maybe nothing at all? Have you, could you try to give us some images of that? Certainly, Don. A debt-financed acquisition means that there is additional debt placed on the acquired entity. Another distinguishing feature of private equity in the classic model is that the acquired entity takes on the new debt through that borrowed money that was the lion's share of the acquisition price. 
So in that 70-30 model, that's 70% of borrowed money is placed on top of the acquired entity as new debt that the acquired entity feels uh, the pressure to generate increased cash flow and revenue to start paying down the interest on the debt of starting in theory on day one. And so what that means in what we've observed in our studies of uh, physician acquisitions is that we typically see an increase in the price per unit of medical care delivered, i.e. the negotiated prices relative to commercial insurers. We also see an increase in the volume of care delivered, the volume of services, office visits, and longer office visits delivered as well. So given that revenue, like healthcare spending, is the product of the prices of services and the quantities of services, we have observed in physician practices in these early specialties that have been acquired an increase in both prices and quantities. On the ground, we have heard, this is more anecdotal, but you'll find some of this evidence through physician surveys, that physician owners of previously independent practices typically do receive a fairly generous cash buyout when they are acquired. This is more typical for older clinicians who are perhaps approaching the latter part of their practicing careers, perhaps looking for an opportunity to ramp down practice for whom an acquisition may make more sense, not only financially, but also just in the management of day-to-day -day practice matters. The younger clinicians in private equity acquired practices, however, face a slightly different reality. They're less likely to be the previous owners. They're less likely to receive a generous cash buyout for the acquisition. And they're more likely to face the pressure of generating new revenue and cash flow to start paying down interest on the debt. And we hear this from our peers following medical school or residency who are now practicing in such practices. And we also see this in studies to date of what physicians have told us. Not only are you talking about generating more revenue, doing more volume at a higher price, creating more revenue, but I understand that private equity also does a lot to manage the expenses side of this. In, in part, you've written about labor, cutting back on some of the labor costs, managing expenses differently, uh, reducing some aspects of the current way in which uh, either hospitals practice or the expenses that they incur. Is there hard evidence to suggest that private equity ownership leads to reductions in expenses, labor, consumables, et cetera? Thank you for that question. We are also working on this specific area of the evidence as well. But the answer right now is it seems to be yes. Our colleagues at other universities have previously written about reductions in hospital costs and staffing. And my colleagues and I have also written about reductions in the clinical workforce in physician practices in the outpatient setting outside of hospitals. And they look a little bit different. Within the hospital, evidence suggests that cutting of resources could take place across a variety of categories of expenses, both human capital and uh, physical capital expenses. On the practice expense side, what we've seen in the data thus far is that higher cost clinicians, notably physicians, are on the margin being replaced a little bit by lower cost mm -hmm. clinician colleagues, such as our nurse practitioner and nurse yeah. physician assistant colleagues. And this is not a normative statement about our wonderful colleagues, such as in our primary care practice, without whom the practice would not be able to run. It looks to be a financial reality of what's happening in the outpatient physician practices space, where cost cutting is not necessarily a reduction in total people, but it's a change in the mix of the clinician labor. Mm -hmm. I really want to give credit here to lots of colleagues across the country who, who have worked on private equity and have worked on this question of cost reductions and the overall questions of spending and quality. They include colleagues at uh, Cornell and Hopkins, now Brown, Berkeley, and at the University of Chicago. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about their work in a little more depth um, here as well, uh, because it is really a big group effort in the academic world of studying private equity. Um, all of our colleagues in these different universities and on these different teams have spent years um, searching for, verifying, identifying, and building the databases of acquisitions that enable a quasi-experimental or a rigorous study design in the academic literature. And yeah. we really owe it to them 
a lot of my colleagues for having done that work in the earlier years that makes this evidence possible. So maybe we can turn to one piece of that evidence. Uh, you know, a recently published paper that you were an author on that had a, a important conclusion. And maybe we can invite you to talk a little bit about this. This was a paper that was published towards the end of last year in, in JAMA about the rates of adverse events. It observed adverse events that took place in hospitals that were under private equity ownership. And you had a comparison group of hospitals that weren't under private equity ownership, and you found a big difference. So take us into the study. Tell us a little bit about its setup and then what you found. Sure. So this study is a follow-on to an earlier one. But to focus on this one first, it was led by an amazing fellow in pulmonary and critical care, Dr. Sneha Cannon here at Harvard Medical School, and also joint with one of my prior amazing graduate students, Dr. Joseph Brutch from the University of Chicago. And we looked at 51 private equity acquired hospitals over the last decade and a half or so, and compared them to 259 non-private equity hospitals that looked like the private equity acquired hospitals on observable attributes. So it was a matched control group, so to speak. And we followed each of these hospitals, both the private equity ones and the non-private equity ones, from three years prior to acquisition through three years post-acquisition. Most of them had at least two years on either side of acquisition. Not all of them had the full three years. But we were able to observe changes in hospital-acquired adverse events or complications or what's technically called hospital-acquired conditions. These include infections, surgical site infections, central line-associated bloodstream infections, falls, and several other categories of adverse events that are deemed to be important clinically, but also preventable by Medicare. We use the definition issued by Medicare for these hospital-acquired complications. And Medicare started using these as part of their hospital incentives in the late 2000s, around 2008 or 2009. So we applied these definitions from Medicare to the Medicare claims data. We were fortunate that here at Harvard Medical School, the institution had made a, a commitment to purchase and acquire 100% inpatient claims data from Medicare. So we were able to observe the full scope of at least traditional Medicare hospitalizations and applying these definitions of adverse events, we saw a 25% increase in aggregate on average of these adverse events relative to the non-private equity hospitals. And that 25% increase was driven by a 38% increase in central line-associated bloodstream infections and a 27% relative increase in patient falls. We also saw, quite concerningly, a doubling of surgical site infections at the private equity hospitals after acquisition, while the non-private equity controls actually saw a reduction in surgical site infections. That particular result was not as statistically significant because the sample size was smaller. Obviously, it's only a small share of hospitalizations in the real world that contain a surgery of some kind. But within that smaller sample of surgical hospitalizations, this result of the private equity hospitals having surgical site infections go up, but the control hospitals seeing them go down, moving in opposite directions, was quite worrisome to us despite the a little bit more, more statistical noise. What, okay, so you've had a long time to think about this. Uh, why? How did this happen? What, what, what do you think is going on inside the hospitals that explain these uh, apparent changes in quality of care? If, if, I'm putting words in your mouth. I assume complications increasing is a decrease in quality from your viewpoint. Indeed, that is the way we're interpreting this result. And we are allowing the data to take us where the data are. And the way we're interpreting what the data is showing us is that it is probably due to reductions in staffing or other hospital-related expenses. And we're in the midst of documenting exactly where the reductions are and by how much at the moment. And hopefully that'll be a follow-on piece of evidence to answer this question for this initial study on quality. But we're fairly certain that reductions in expenses and mostly through staffing in many key areas of the hospital are at the very least related to this finding on quality, if not contributing to it directly. And we can see that in all um, three layers, so to speak, of the hospital, uh, the ORs with surgical site infections, the inpatient floors with falls, and in the ICUs with central line infections, 
that the staffing reductions are probably spread out through the different parts of the hospital and perhaps not concentrated in one particular category. With that said, we're also respecting the heterogeneity across private equity acquisitions. One important point to make is that private equity acquisitions are not monolithic. Even though in research papers, we treat it as a common intervention or a common treatment that we evaluate, in the real world, we really do respect the fact that they vary in the type of deals or the deal size or the nature of the debt, the amount of debt, the proportion of debt, and perhaps these other unobservable aspects of that contract that we, of course, cannot see in the research world because private equity is by definition private. And so we are presenting an average result. But of course, around every average, there will be a distribution. Around every average, there will be outliers to the left and to the right. And there will inevitably be hospitals that are doing a little better on quality or a little worse on quality compared to the average. And so we do want to emphasize that this is an average result across this still rather small set of 51 private equity hospitals. Let me, I want to go back to the observations you made. I want to ask a, a question about this. So a private equity acquisition, which you say may be about 10% of the healthcare systems so far, is only one form, pardon me? Sorry, Don, I, I just said of hospitals. Of hospitals. Right. It's only one form of ownership. For example, there are for-profit hospitals that have stockholders, shareholders, and are owned by a corporation, as opposed to a voluntary hospital where the board of trustees is supposed to represent the interest of the public. Uh, also, we're seeing on the physician side a very strong trend in this country to more and more doctors becoming employees, in particular of a subsidiary of an insurance company, Optum, a subsidiary of an insurance company, United Health Group, um, now employs um, uh, tens of thousands. I mean, is it up to 90,000 doctors, something like that? Uh, um, 70,000 is what they've reported. Okay. Is there a distinction in your mind between this kind of financialization ownership of care through through corporate entities with stockholders or through employers like insurance company and the private equity entry? Or are we looking at one piece of a bigger trend in the country, if you get my point? Yes. Thank you, Don, for that question. They are certainly both in the way you've described here, parts of the corporatization of healthcare delivery, but they are also distinct. A distinct feature of the private equity type of acquisition is a short holding period. We've seen that typically the acquired entity, whether it's a hospital, nursing home, or physician practice, is sold again roughly between three or five or seven years after acquisition. Whereas the holding period for other types of private ownership, including academic medical centers and other hospital chains tends to be longer. And over a longer holding period, there is uh, more time and also perhaps more reason to invest in the actual service line delivery of a healthcare good or a healthcare service. Uh, perhaps time to invest or improve the process of delivery, but with a short holding period and the pressure to generate returns for investors uh, fairly quickly after acquisition, we typically see that it makes sense cost cutting might be, or staffing reductions might be the primary mechanism to achieve that quickly. So the holding period is one. Another is the set of so-called financial engineering strategies that private equity firms have historically used. This is a big set of tools that firms can use to increase their returns for investors and decrease the financial risk they face. So I'll give you a common example, which is a strategy called dividend recapitalization. In many forms of dividend recapitalization, a private equity firm can deliver additional returns to the investors soon after acquisition by taking a portion of the physical infrastructure of a hospital or nursing home or practice and turning that into debt, into additional debt, and thus returning a portion of that value back to the investors in the first year or two after acquisition. This is a that, that is set sits on the delivery system. It's they get that extra debt burden. Correct. So you could start with a 70, 30, 70 borrowed money, 30% uh, equity type of acquisition, and soon see that acquisition become 80-20. Now it's 80% debt, 20% equity, because 10% has been changed from equity to debt. That allows that 10% to be returned to the investors in the short term. 
Dividend recapitalization has, is a common tool used not only in healthcare and not only in private equity, but it's emblematic of other strategies like the use of bankruptcy, let's say, as a way to reduce the purchase price, reduce risk, and to generate additional returns for investors. So there are lots of financial tools available to private equity firms that we do not observe or at least have not heard anecdotally or in other studies other forms of private ownership using in the healthcare delivery system. Sarah, I want to go back to your study on adverse events for a moment, because I think there, there were, apart from the headline of there being a higher rate of adverse events in the private equity-owned institutions compared to the other 259 hospitals that you looked at, there were two other parts of the story that I found striking. And I'd be interested in your comments on this. One was that increase in adverse events took place on a smaller denominator. There were fewer people. <laughs> in the, the, the increase in surgical site infections that you described took place on a smaller number of people in the private equity-owned institutions. Um, and similarly, the central line bloodstream infection increase took place on a smaller number of central line catheters that were inserted into patients. So that meant your relative risk, if you're a patient sitting in one of those private equity-owned hospitals, and you're getting surgery or you're having a central line inserted, your relative risk of having or developing a complication was much higher than it would have been in a non-private equity-owned hospital getting the same exact procedure. Uh, so I wanted your comments on that finding because it, it's, it's not just that the rate was higher. It is that the rate was higher and it was happening on top of a, a smaller number of patients in those institutions. We shared that concern. We certainly shared that concern. For central lines, we saw a 16% relative reduction compared to the control group of the number of central lines placed for all Medicare patients coming through the inpatient floors. And uh, despite that 16% reduction in volume, there was that 38% relative increase in central line infections. Right. And for the doubling of surgical site infections, there was actually an 8% reduction in total surgeries done. The reduction in volume may come from the fact that on average, Medicare patients admitted to private equity acquired hospitals are a little bit younger and a little bit lower risk. And this comes to my second observation from your, the second other story, which is actually the third story now in your paper, which is that the, the people that were admitted to private equity hospitals were younger and generally healthier. They had a, what we in healthcare called a better case mix on some level. So can you comment on that? What, what's driving that? What's your observation there of what, what's happening with the the type of patients that are being seen in these hospitals. Why is it different? They were certainly on average a little bit younger and they were less likely to be dual eligible for Medicaid. Those two results were quite robust. On their clinical diagnoses, we actually saw a relative increase in diagnosed conditions. Now that may be truth or that may be upcoding. Mm -hmm. If it were truth, it would have to be that among younger, and lower socioeconomically or sociodemographically risk or risky populations among younger and lower risk patients, somehow they are clinically sicker soon after acquisition. If that were a coding effect, it would be that financial incentives of private equity firms might well be aligned with increasing the diagnostic coding of patients, given that coding intensity is correlated with financial incentives and payers pay for sicker patients on average. So there is no way exactly to pinpoint whether it is all truth or all a coding effect or some mix of both, but certainly they are younger and less likely to be dual eligible. We think that those two characteristics alone suggest that it is probably a healthier or lower risk population. So among lower risk populations, the increase in adverse events is troublesome. The other reason that it is probably a lower risk population is that average mortality inside the hospital actually went down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that is consistent with the fact that they are younger and less socioeconomically disadvantaged. The interesting thing so, about this small decrease in hospital mortality was that it faded away quite quickly after seven or 30 days post discharge from the hospital that small advantage, which was likely due to case mix changes of younger and lower risk patients, dissipated as well. And in our, uh, go ahead. 
So is this a first, from your point of view, does your paper confirm previous findings? Is this a new story? Or is this something that is yet another story of what is happening in private equity-owned institutions? Like, What's your view of what, is this a confirmatory study? Is it a new thing? Or are we looking at a pattern here of what's happening in private equity? And if it's a pattern, what do we do about it? Well, it certainly builds on a lot of the evidence that my fantastic colleagues, both here and at other institutions, have done, as noted earlier. So in that sense, it is not uh, the first piece of evidence like this about private equity acquisitions. Uh, It is new in the sense that these hospital-acquired adverse events are outcomes that have not been evaluated in a 100% Medicare inpatient data set before. And I would say that these adverse events give you a sense of more granular clinical quality on the ground for patients, as opposed to what we have tried to study earlier in one of the dissertation papers led by Dr. Joseph Brachnell at the University of Chicago when he was here at the Harvard School of Public Health as a PhD student back in 2020. Joe's study then looked at process measures after private equity acquisition. Mm -hmm. And we saw that there was a mix in the changes in process measures after private private equity acquisition. The process measures comprised only eight reported measures from Medicare across only three clinical conditions. And in these eight measures, the clinical substance within them was, you might argue, questionable. So I'll give you an example of one of these process measures. It would be a notion of quality if a patient being discharged from a hospital received a discharge summary. That's the measure. Now, that might be important. Discharge summaries can indeed be very important, but it may not reflect clinical decisions or nuanced, granular clinical quality of care on the ground. And in that study, we saw that the large 2006 Hospital Corporation of America acquisition drove much of the upward changes in those process measures. If you took Hospital Corporation of America out, the rest of the private equity acquisitions of hospitals did not show an improvement in process measures. And so we wanted to improve upon the evidence base of process quality measures to what we believe is a better set of clinical outcomes-based measures like these hospital-acquired complications. Sarah, have you heard responses from the private equity sector itself, the firms, are they responding? What are they saying about your study and others related to it? We have received some feedback from the industry, uh, some in person during seminars with research presentations when they are in attendance, and uh, some after the publication of this study. Uh, in general, the reception uh, has been what we might expect. Uh, there has been uh, some opposition to our findings, uh, some efforts to question the results. I think on substantive grounds, one of the lines of pushback, which has been compelling, is that private equity firms have different strategies when it comes to healthcare acquisitions. They are not all one and the same. They are, again, not monolithic. And so we have received, you might call suggestion, or you might say pushback to study these acquisitions more so one by one, as opposed to all together. And here we get into a pedagogical or philosophical, perhaps, debate about how do we know what we know? Is it through anecdotes of one-off stories, or is it through estimated average treatment effects? And in our research ecosystem, estimated average treatment effects are typically the strategy for showing the anticipated effects of a policy or an intervention. And it allows you to pull the sample size together and have more precise statistical estimates and say something with more confidence. So that's the route we've taken. But out of respect for this pushback and feedback, we are now doing a lot of work in trying to understand in a more granular fashion, firm by firm, the differences in their strategy within these hospitals they've acquired. And we do see differences. So in all fairness to our colleagues from industry, private equity acquisitions are not monolithic. Yet it is also true that despite not being monolithic, there are various versions of concerning results that we're starting to see as we break down the sample. So we'll know more as we watch the space about the heterogeneity you talked about earlier. Um, <clears throat> has this led you um, to think about policy and um, 
finance? Uh, do, do you are you starting to arrive at ideas yet about how we might be changing the context in American healthcare to protect against what might be some negative effects of this acquisition? Yes, we have. And among all of my colleagues, we have had various efforts to start thinking about policy responses. And many of my colleagues and I have worked with now state and federal governments in talking through potential regulatory responses or policy ideas. In one short essay, which was led by one of my colleagues at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Christopher Kai, who's currently a resident there, we laid out roughly five categories of potential policy ideas or responses. And many of these are not new in the setting of consolidation in the healthcare delivery system. Uh, but these at least get the conversation going with our policymaker colleagues at the state and federal levels. So just to list them briefly, and we can go into them if you would like, these involved dealing with the antitrust issue of consolidation at the federal level with the bandwidth of the FTC at the state level with state AGs and the corporate practice of medicine laws. Second, dealing with fraud and abuse. So this involves federal statutes such as the anti-kickback statute or the Stark laws. The third would be addressing moral hazard in these private equity acquisitions. As we noted earlier, when you buy something with a relatively small share of the acquisition price being real equity and much of it being borrowed, there is by definition relatively low financial risk placed onto the parent private equity firm. They are in essence, working with other people's money or society's resources. And the failure of one of these acquired entities, both outside and inside of healthcare, has typically meant that the parent private equity firm is generally free from accountability, at least in a financial sense. So to be very concrete about this, and not to dive into this too deeply now, but among physician practices that are acquired, you typically see a platform practice in an area acquired, and then a roll-up strategy of practices around there of the same specialty being acquired as well. Although this collective now of many practices negotiate together for prices when they negotiate with commercial insurers, if one of these practices goes into bankruptcy, the actual financial accountability now is separate relative to all of the other rolled up practices and the parent private equity firm. And in settings outside of healthcare, the workers who have been laid off in these businesses that have been acquired have generally had their pension responsibilities defer to the federal government. In other words, the parent private equity firm has not had to take accountability or responsibility for the pensions of the workers, such as at the grocery stores or the local news organizations that have been acquired and gone through bankruptcy. There's roughly a 10x bankruptcy rate, as far as the literature can tell us, of private equity acquired entities relative to similar non-private equity acquired entities. So moral hazard is in this sense, the risk involved in acquiring a business or a healthcare entity. And that risk right now is very low. So there are various policy ideas to increase that risk a little bit, meaning allow the private equity parent firm to have a bit more skin in the game when they make one of these acquisitions, largely with investors and society's dollars rather than their own. So are you, your, your colleague community of researchers finding increasing or curiosity from Congress and uh, regulatory agencies seeking to make changes now, or is that a tough uphill struggle at the moment? We have observed increased interest among our public servants in society, quite honestly. Many of these are career officials in state government, in the federal government, who have expressed interest in understanding the scope of private equity acquisitions in healthcare and quickly soon thereafter, how might they deal with that, sometimes in their state or as part of their um, federal program. So uh, one yeah. example would be in the state of Oregon, there is now a bill in the state legislature working its way through with a hearing next month that aims to address many of these issues in private equity. And some of my colleagues and I had done public presentations of the existing evidence for the legislators. The state of Connecticut, similar interest. State of Massachusetts, similar interest. At the federal level, interest from various congressional committees and staffers of our lawmakers on this topic. Let's talk about, let's conclude now. We're going to run out of, we're rapidly running out of time, but um, maybe we can ask from the other end of the spectrum about interests. Um, because of course, um, one question is whether consumers, patients, families, communities will even know 
whether their hospital is under a different ownership and will whether they should be concerned about that given the findings that you've now put into your paper and that and others that have confirmed or seen similar findings in their in their environments. There, from your perspective, do patients and families have any how would they know? If a listener here is listening to you and wondering about their hospital, what would they how would they find out whether their hospital is under private equity ownership and what if anything is being done to reduce staffing or other potential concerning things that might lead to complications and concerns for them and their families? Yeah, great question. In today's world, it is really difficult to know, quite frankly. Yeah. A hospital or a physician practice or nursing home across the street or right under one's nose could be acquired without one knowing about it. And when it is sold again, soon after acquisition or several years after, it is similarly difficult to know about that sale. I can say this from a on behalf of my colleagues with a bit of our collective experience in that to study private equity acquisitions, many of my colleagues have spent years of their graduate school time building the databases required to study this question. And that is different from other types of research where one might download a database or receive a database from a payer or mm -hmm. a government organization, because by the very nature of things, private equity acquisitions are private. And we've mm -hmm. had to piece together acquisitions, verify them, put them into a database, define the time of acquisition, and be sure that what we are studying are real acquisitions. It is a much higher bar for a consumer or a patient out there in society to be able to do this systematically. And you're actually getting to the, what was the fourth and fifth categories, if you will, of potential policy responses. One being transparency. We at the federal level, private equity acquisition has to exceed over $111 million for it to be mandatorily reported. And many states, including the policymakers we've spoken with, are interested in potentially lowering that threshold so that more acquisitions are reported and there is a bit more sunlight shine on these um, acquisitions. And the last one was really patient protections, as you noted as well. This um, includes simply the increase in prices. And a canonical story for this would be the No Surprises Act or how our medical system has dealt with surprise billing. That is one reflection, one version of the consequences of, in that case, emergency department staffing firms acquired by private equity and the increases in prices are quite striking. We see increased charges in the hospital setting, increased mm -hmm. prices in the physician practice setting. Again, if you think about generating returns quickly for your investors, not only is cost cutting or staffing reductions a fast mechanism, but increases in negotiated prices is also a relatively fast mechanism. And patient and that gets passed on to the consumer in the form of a surprise bill potentially, or just well, higher premiums in a higher premiums, right? Right. Lazira, well, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you for your uh, explanations. These are complex topics that are pretty opaque, as you've now explained to us or helped us understand. And we appreciate your commitment and dedication of the, yourself and your colleagues to, to, to arriving the databases necessary to conduct the kind of research that you're doing and help us understand the impact of some of these uh, financial maneuvers. Uh, Zira, as you look forward, we have a tradition of asking our guests about whether you feel a degree of optimism about the future of, of this arena or whether you feel concern and pessimism about its future? What, what's your take on this? What should we be hoping for? Thank you for that question and for your time here today. It just so happens that we're sitting here in January when every January the Harvard Medical School and Dental School have their first year health policy course for students. And I have the privilege of helping to run that course for our Department of Healthcare Policy. And so in speaking with first year medical and dental students about corporatization or this particular topic, I have still been struck and made more optimistic by the optimism and idealism of our early stage and early career students. And that optimism, I think, is one of the most refreshing, renewing forces in our delivery system. Patients, rather medical students who come into training with this sense of social justice, what is right for the world, what is their role in the delivery system, and what is the role of healthcare delivery through our society. That is incredibly recentering and inspiring. I'm also equally made more optimistic by our public servants at the state and federal levels. Many of these colleagues work 
day and night without much credit or attribution on these critical topics facing Medicare beneficiaries or Medicaid beneficiaries or even privately insured or uninsured individuals. And on a topic like this, they are also sinking their teeth in in an uphill battle to understand and address this. What makes me less optimistic is this current policy environment and the legislative process embedded in the current policy environment where it seems that regulatory efforts or policies to address corporatization, including private equity, face a certain uphill battle at both the state and federal levels. And so it is unlikely, in my opinion, that one would see large changes in a regulatory response in the near future, although anything could happen. One lesson we draw from the No Surprises Act is that it took roughly three years and lots of lobbying back and forth and a lot of effort on behalf of lots of populations across the country for something to be done about that topic. And we still have holes to fill on that particular policy response. So if that teaches something, it's probably going to take a while. We appreciate your efforts in helping us to at least fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge and our understanding. So thank you for being here on Turn On The Lights and look forward to your ongoing research as we learn more about the role of private equity in healthcare today. Thank you. Thank you both so much. It's really an honor to be here with you. John, you've been an observer of this space, uh, what Zuri called the corporatization of healthcare. And I think you've had some of your own concerns about that in, in the past. But what do you make of this work on private equity and this sort of mounting evidence that there may be something, there may be more to this story or there may be something very challenging about the story uh, to our understanding? Yes, I'm very worried, not just about the private equity piece of this, but the increasing financialization of, of healthcare. You and I have talked quite a bit about it. And I, speak, I think it's become my central uh, research concern and my central concern about policy. We're really lucky to have scholars like Zura. I mean, he's very careful, very cautious. And his paper is a real, it could be watershed paper because it's the best single study so far showing pretty severe effect of this change in ownership. But I see it as part of a much larger pattern of the entry of financial interests at a level I've just never seen before in healthcare, which you might expect in a $4 trillion industry, the money's here and people want the money. But there's a story that's going to continue to play out here. Whether the kind of evidence we're getting from Zuri and others, like including Rose Bat, who has been a guest also on our podcast series, and the community of scholars she's talking about whether that evidence is going to be able to hold the day in, in getting firmer policy to get this under control. I just don't know. But I think I fear people are really getting hurt. I don't want to be over alarmist, and I think sticking close to the evidence is good. But if you follow Zuri's paper, you would have to make, you'd have to reach the conclusion that in fact, people are literally getting hurt, uh, at least to a degree and to some extent. I had a very interesting dinner a, a couple of weeks ago with a uh, the healthcare executive, executive, couple of executives from C-suite leadership in hospitals. And at the table, somebody leaned over at one point and said, do you think that private equity has met its match in healthcare? The idea that, in fact, although what we're describing here and what Zuri is describing is that some growth, ascendancy of different forms of capital, private equity ownership, it hasn't been a complete takeover of the industry. What he's describing is a 20-year path to less than 10% of the industry. And it's challenged in a really significant way to produce the kind of returns that investors expect and the kind of outcomes that communities expect. And you can see it in, in some of this. I think you also see it in the growing frustration of healthcare professionals. When, when a doctor's practice is taken over by a private equity endeavor, sometimes that doesn't work out so well for the doctor and, and their practice, and that leads to pushback against that ownership. And you've seen a release of healthcare just as much as you've seen new acquisitions. So I don't know the answer about this, and but I, I wondered, that was an interesting provocation for, this, uh, for my dinner companion. Yeah, wish I'd been at that dinner. That's an interesting thought. We, this is a very much dynamically evolving story. So maybe your dinner companion was right, and we're gonna see something the stall here in the private equity march forward. But a couple of these dynamics don't look like they're that horrific. The, what Zuri described, and we've heard it described before in this podcast of the debt financing approach, mm -hmm. which investors 
put debt back on the delivery system. That itself has negative effects on the degrees of freedom and what the people actually running the care and giving the care can do. And that's got a tail of effect that I'm quite worried about. The other thing is, let's say it's a bubble. Let's say that all of this hype about investing in healthcare, it's where the money is now, take your money and put it there, ends up uh, crashing, uh, where it, it's not a sustainable model. That can't be good. And that means uh, this there'll be failures of healthcare delivery systems and corporations, which could have effects that we don't want to see. When it's a bubble in the marketing arena, it's not good. It's not good for employees. But here we have patients also at risk. So I guess on our, in our usual optimism to pessimism scale, I'm a little bit scale. I'm a little bit pessimistic about this one. We need some real courage to study it, understand what's going on, and act on it. And um, yeah. well, Zuri certainly represents the courage to study it, and uh, we're glad to have people like him and his colleagues, uh, which he referenced many times, doing the active work of studying and understanding. And trying to get inside of the black box, I think he was pretty careful to say that it's not, you know, private equity is not a monolith. There's different forms of it. They act differently. They do different things. I would hope that perhaps at least to a researcher like Zuri and his colleagues, that private equity would open the books a little bit to try to help us understand and help them understand what makes for successful ownership. If they're going to be involved, if there's going to be a stake in this game. I hope they'll be interested and motivated to ensure that their stake in the game is as safe and as uh, carefully constructed as possible. So maybe there's we want... Lessons. There's lessons to learn from that variation. If they're yeah, real, exactly. you can't stand about it. Yeah. Yeah, we, want, we need financing in healthcare, as you say, Don. So perhaps what we need is financing that produces better health. And if our, those that control the financing would be interested in learning about what it takes to produce better health, they could, in fact, be better partners to all of us. Well, Don, thank you for being part of this conversation. And uh, it's great to have Zuri on. Thanks. Yeah. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn On The Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn On The Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.